When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For over 10 years, VOC Nation has taken listeners behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Our hosts are not only experts on the business, but have lived in the business. Subscribe and hear weekly podcasts from hosts like legendary pro wrestling journalist Bill After, former Impact Wrestling star Wes Briscoe, former WWE and AWA broadcaster Ken Resnick, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, former WCW star The Maestro, NWA legend, the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez, and much more. VOC Nation programming is free on most major podcasting apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Radio.com. And video podcast and bonus content is available on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. What are you waiting for? Head to VOCNation.com and dig into the most comprehensive podcast network built for pro wrestling fans. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at VOC Nation Wrestling Network and follow us on Twitter at VOC Nation. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today has been a part of the wrestling business for over 32 years. He was a mild-mannered accountant by day and a pro wrestling referee in the evening and the weekends. He has refereed in the AWA, NWA, WWF, and many indie promotions. He recently authored a book titled Ring Man that, takes, that talks about his time in wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. Dave Dwinnell. Dave, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Well, Brian, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. I looked at some of your past shows, and I was quite impressed. I really appreciate it. Uh, full disclosure, folks, Dave reached out to me. Uh, which is rare. I usually have to reach out to everybody I've had on this show, so it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's an honor and pleasure that uh, he reached out to me and uh, we were able to get this uh, uh, going today. So I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you so much. And uh, let's talk a little bit about you growing up. Uh, you kind of talked to me a little bit before the show started. Growing up, uh, your childhood. So where'd you grow up? Well. I grew up in central Massachusetts in a small town called Millbury, which, as you could probably guess, had about eight or nine mills in it. Um, it was a blue-collar town. Everybody knew everybody, kind of like Mayberry of Andy Griffith. Um, today, it's a little bit different there. It's a, a suburb of Boston, which is 40 minutes away. The mills are now condos. They're all closed, and um, many mansions have been popping up. And downtown is deserted because the, everybody goes to the mall outside of town. But it was a wonderful place to grow up and um, came from a big family, um, had about 30 cousins up in the area. And only two of us kind of left the area. We felt that there was life outside Millbury. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, – schooling. So you're an accountant. So uh, – Obviously, you had to go to school. Uh, where did you go to school, and, and uh, what was that like for you? Well, I went to John Carroll University out in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, 
I had started off with sociology and um, kind of changed to accounting. And um, after college, I actually start, went into teaching in a private sector at a, at a prep school up in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, found out you couldn't make a whole lot of money teaching in a prep school. And actually, the school closed. So obviously, um, I wasn't going to hang around there. So I, I ended up moving uh, outside of New York City, Westchester County, and uh, eventually ended up taking a job at the Trade Center in Manhattan. And um, I, I kind of, I kind of got involved in accounting work, even though I'm not a CPA or anything like that. But it, just through luck, I was able to um, land land a job at the Trade Center. I answered a blind ad, believe it or not, and showed up for the uh, showed up to fill out the paperwork and fellow walks by and says, are you Dave Dwinnell? And I go, well, yes, I am. And he goes, oh, um, you coach my son in basketball. I said, oh. And he says, I'm vice president of the company. We'll see what we can do. And I ended up with a job. So it was, um, you know, quite fortuitous. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's talk about getting started in wrestling. Um, based on your background, you don't seem like the typical – person that would get into the, the business as, uh, even as a referee so kind of walk us through how you how you started in that how you got involved well I, I mentioned in the book um, that to the uninformed observer I probably looked like a suit and tie wearing briefcase carrying nerd but when I got into the locker room and got the powder blue shirt and the bow tie you, you kind of become like Walter Mitty or Superman you, you take on a different persona but my actual introduction to wrestling was in 1959. My father had brought home for Christmas a box with a cord called a television set. And uh, there were three channels with snow on. And yeah, yeah. my brother and I were going through the three channels. And I said, gee, there's not much of interest to me. Uh, and then we see these two guys beating the crap out of each other in the middle of a ring. And I'm 12 years old at the time, maybe or 11, and he's 10 or 9. And I'm my brother and I'm going, what is this? It's not boxing. They're not wearing gloves. And uh, I became fascinated with this. And all of a sudden, this guy appears called Ray Morgan, who did Capital Wrestling, which was the original WWF at the time. I, I believe at the time they were part of the NWA. And Ray is sitting at ringside smoking a cigarette, drinking coffee, speaking into a microphone going and stay tuned next week when we have Haystack Calhoun against I look at Walski and I'm going, oh, my God, i got to watch this. So my brother and I became fascinated. So in those days, of course, you didn't have Internet. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have anything. So we had a form. We had to kind of do in the summertime something to take up our time. So we formed a wrestling league on our front lawn. And wow. sometimes I'd be the face like Bobo Brazil or sometimes I'd be the heel like Kowalski. And the to, to do a pin, you had to count one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand, and sometimes the fights over whether it was a pin or a quick count were, were fiercer than the actual battles <laughs> itself. Uh, and we eventually decided we were going to go see a live show at the Worcester Memorial Auditorium, and we went to a live show. Just as I finally, after two weeks of begging my mother, I was in high school at the time. She let us go by ourselves because it, my parents would have ruined it for me. We got front row seats, and I looked around, and it's all blue collar workers, smoking, drinking. You could hardly see the ring because of the smoke. 
betting on the matches. And I go, we're, we're kind of like the only kids here. And Bruno Sammartino was against uh, the Hawaiian giant, Curtis Iakia. Johnny Rodge was on the show, a real hothead. He got thrown in front of me a few times and clenched his fist at me. And uh, it answered the question for me. Was it real? Absolutely. They had the same bumps and bruises I had wrestling with my brother. So that was my interest. That was my introduction to wrestling. And, of course, I cheered Bruno on, and I got to meet Bruno at the World's Fair. And he actually spent 10 minutes talking to me, which I thought was fantastic. I was in high school. I waited for everybody to leave. He was at the Budweiser Pavilion, I think it was, carrying two quarter kegs on his shoulders around. And I waited until after he did this, and everybody left, and I went home, and I said, Bruno, I'd like to talk to you. And he goes, absolutely, but let me sit down. I'm exhausted. And he, he spent 10 minutes. Now, how many how many world champions would spend 10 minutes talking to a high school kid? Nowadays, um, not too many. That was my kind of intro. I don't want to talk too much. And it, it no, was, it's, it's, this is all about talking. So I... That's interesting that you talked to Bruno Sammartino for 10 minutes and he didn't charge you 50 bucks uh, or anything. But back in those days, you know, things were a lot different. Well, and I figured I'd never have a chance to see him again because I was still living in Millbury at the time. Well, as I mentioned before, I moved to Westchester County outside New York City. I was working at the Trade Center. And on Monday nights, I used to, once a month, we'd watch the Madison Square Garden live. And I'd have a bunch of friends over, and we'd have a few brewskis. And I made the comment, gee, that ref's doing a terrible job. So my friend goes, yeah, and you could do a better job? I said, probably. So well, why don't you? So the next day I said, you know what? At the, at the suggestion of a friend, I'm going to look into this. So I call. I, I couldn't find a number. There was no internet in those days. I couldn't find the number for the WWF. So I found uh, Capital Wrestling. So I call Capital Wrestling 25 times. Nobody answers. Finally, on a 26th time, I don't know if it was Toots Mont or Willie Gilsenberg, but I get on a phone. I said, is this Capital Wrestling? Yeah, who wants to know? I said, well, my name's Dave Dwinnell. What do you want? I said, well, I want to be a referee with your – we don't need any. I said, okay. I said, can I send you a resume? Don't send me any gifts, kid. The answer will still be no. And he hangs up. I said, well, that went well. And I said, I'm not giving up. I looked up their physical address and I found it and I went to it and it turned out to be the Holland Hotel in Manhattan. Oh. So every day at lunchtime for three weeks, I went at lunchtime to see if I could find somebody coming in or out from the WWF. Well, finally, the doorman comes out and he says, can I ask you something? Are you a cop, a private eye, stalker, or are you just a nut? And I said, well, I'm looking for somebody from the WWF. And he goes, they're here once a month for a couple of days. Evidently, they used a room there as their office when in New uh, York. So he said, if you don't leave now, and, and you, you better not come back. I'll have you arrested for stalking. I said, okay. So I said, well, this ain't going to work. I give up. Well, about a month later, I'm the master of ceremonies at our church's 100th anniversary. And I run into this guy called Mickey DeFate. And he was with the box. He had been a boxer and he I figured maybe he'll know something about wrestling. He said, Yeah, I'll tell you how to get a license. Stop by my office tomorrow on Jackson Avenue. So I drive up down Jackson Avenue ten times. His office is a hot dog truck. <laughs> and 
I walked in and he says, here, start helping me serve hot dogs. So I serve hot dogs with him. And he says, look, you want to get a license? Any wrestling promoter in New York has to be licensed by New York State. And he goes, I will get a couple of, with your background, having taught and coached, I will I get a couple of politicians to recommend you to the state commission, which they did. So I get a packet in the mail um, to fill out, send in a $50 check and fill this out. Non-refundable. That's the state. Um, two weeks later, I get a license. I'm now certified to referee in New York. Wow. That's, I said, that's... wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Except they never called me. <laughs> so three months go by, and I'm going, well, I'm not paying them 50 bucks. I'll tell them, give me my money back if you're not going to call me. So the, the office was right around the corner from the athletic commission. Or the athletic commission was right around the corner from the trade center. So I walk over, and I speak to this clerk. And I said, you know, I'd like to work. You gave me a license. I want to work. Oh, we'll call you shortly. Well, three months went by. And I guess shortly for him was different than me. So I go back. And this time, Mickey told me, you you, you want to speak to the boss. Tell the clerk, forget it. So we started arguing and yelling. And the boss comes up, the chairman of the commission. So he says, come into my office. And I told him I had been involved in politics. I ran for mayor of our small community, happened to be in a party he was appointed in. He says, you're going to work. So two weeks later, I get a call and they assign me to the Westchester County Center, holds 5,000 people with the WWF. And I'm going, what do I do now? I've never talked to a wrestler. I don't know if it's fake. Uh, could they hurt me if they don't like me? Uh, so I went and borrowed every VHS tape known to mankind and watched the referee. So I show up at the county center. And I'm going, well, this may be the first and the last. So Arnold Scolan was the promoter with his wife, Betty. Okay. And this is back in 1982. And I had known Arnold because we had sh- uh, he lived near me, and we used to meet at this coffee shop. He'd be there, I'd be there, and we'd talk wrestling. So I show up with my little suitcase. I never brought a gym bag. I always brought a little suitcase. And Arnie goes, um, Dave, you going on vacation? <laughs> And I said, no, I'm one of your referees. And he was totally in shock. Excuse me. And I'm dripping all over with the sciences. He's totally in shock. So he says, um, it's getting late, Dave. You better go up and talk to Rods. My first match was Johnny Rods, the hothead that had been thrown in my feet a few years prior. It was against Johnny Rods against 21-year-old Eddie Gilbert. Wow. So... He says, go up and talk to Rod. So I'm going up the stairs to the Teal's locker room, and I'm going, what do I talk about? The weather? How's the wife? Is wrestling fake? I said, this is not going to end too well. So I walk in the locker room, and Johnny's tying his boots, and Johnny calls me over, and he says, first match, kid? I go, how'd you know? He goes, I know. <laughs> now, I didn't know Johnny broke in the talent for Vince. He broke in a lot of talent for Vince yeah. Sr. trusted Johnny because Johnny – Everybody goes, well, how did a jobber get in the Hall of Fame? A jobber. He was a great wrestler, and he broke in so many. I mean, in wrestling, people don't understand. You could have a horrible wrestler who's the face who's really over, and the guy that makes him is the heel. And uh, Johnny Johnny was well-respected in business. As a matter of fact, Jack, uh, Jack Briscoe, who was a great champion, said that Johnny Rice could have a match with a um, – um, with a with a broom and make the broom look good. So the yeah, greatest yeah. thing that could have happened to me was I had Johnny Rods. 
So Johnny calls me over, put me at ease, said, let's work together. You're going to disqualify me at the end of the match, and you are going to tell me I'm going to have the commission fine you $1,000 if you push me again. He made me an integral part of the match, okay? And he got me through the first match. And from that on, they put a new athletic commissioner in who happened to be friends of friends, and he said, Dave, I'm going to give you a shot. I'm going to go to the county center. I'm going to watch you. If you can work, we'll use you. If you can't, we won't. He said, Dave, you were good. We're going to call you. And they started calling me on a regular basis. So I know it was a long, detailed story, but that's basically how I ended up in the ring, um, yeah. which is kind of really unusual. I guess. No, there were no wrestling schools in those days. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty amazing that um, <laughs> you actually had known some of these people. I mean, the commission, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and how you got involved is because it, it's it's a it's actually a very neat story that uh, how that happened. Well, nobody really wanted to be a wrestling referee in those days. It was yeah. really boxing. The commission handled boxing and wrestling, and wrestling was kind of considered um, second best. I mean, the magazines, many of the magazines, they had wrestling in back of the uh, boxing and Ring Magazine, for example. Mm-hmm. You'd buy a magazine when I was a kid. Yeah. Boxing would be in the front, and they have a few pages of wrestling. Yeah, so you kind of started when the, you know, the in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And my understanding is, uh, you know, at that time, there were so many different territories. You know, you had the big three, well, what many consider the big three, the AWA, the NWA, and the WWF. And you started out in the WWF. Did, uh, when did you, I mean... Some other great matches. Did you ever, like you said, Johnny Rots, uh, you did some title matches. What was your, in that time when you first started, what was probably your, I don't want to say favorite, but most memorable match that you worked? That's an easy question. Excuse me. Bruno Sammartino, who came out of retirement for a few matches. I happened to be lucky enough to do Bruno against um, Bob Orton Sr., Randy Orton's father, at the county center. I have a wonderful picture of it. There was um, a man, it wasn't televised, but there's a man in the front row that had a zoom lens camera. So I went out in my street clothes before, and I said, look, if Bruno wins, would you please take a picture? Me raising his hand. Um, so I got in a ring, and Bruno wins but via count out. So we were in the wrong side of the ring. So I'm, I'm, I'm trotting Bruno all the way around the other side of the ring. And Bruno goes, are we on television? And I said, no, no, I'll explain in the locker room, but you have to come with me. So we trotted around the entire ring. So we got to the cameraman, and I raised his hand. And when we got back to the locker room, he, he got the biggest kick out of that. And I guess he probably thought, God, this guy's a fan. He's not a worker. But you know what? For that match, I wasn't. Yeah. Because here's a guy I met in high school that I watched at the county center. And I'm in a ring with him. Yeah. And and obviously he sold out the garden for so many years. I mean, it was just a thrill to be in the same ring yeah. with the living legend. That's probably without a doubt. No, not probably. It's without a doubt the greatest match I ever worked. And uh, yeah. the second greatest was actually um, USA Pro Wrestling came in with the NWA, AWA. Remember, yeah. Vince was going into their territory, so they came in to invade the his territory, and I got to work with Nick Bockwinkle against. Oh. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, Nick Bockwinkle against um, 
uh, Rick, Rick Martell for the title, AWA title. But what made that match special was in the corner of Mick Bockwinkle was Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, the first WWF champion. So I get to work with three champions in one match. Yeah. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget pointing at Rogers and he was giving me heat at the end of the match because Bachwinkle's leg was over the rope and I missed it. And I counted to three and he was in my face and ready to hit me. And I said, I cannot believe I'm arguing. And you know, the sad part, a lot of people in the audience had no idea who he was. Yeah. That was kind of the sad part, yeah. but what a match. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, yeah, you mentioned that. Um, I didn't see Buddy Rogers much as a kid. I knew more as a, you know, the manager, because he managed Snuka for a while and all that. Right. Um, but you mentioned the name even Nick Bockwinkle today to a younger fan. They're not going to know who he is, and that's pretty unfortunate. I mean, that guy, I mean, I couldn't stand that guy when I was a kid. He was such a good heel. But Well, him he, and Heenan got some heat. I believe Bobby Heenan is his manager. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And they got some heat. You talk yeah. about. Yeah, I mean, I could not stand those two, and they did their job very, very well. I will say that. So, okay. Well, the funny, the funny okay. part, the funny part for me was I enjoyed working more with the legends mm-hmm. when I was refereeing than with the guys that maybe even were on top at that point in time. Guys like Harley Race, guys like, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Guys like uh, Nick Bockwinkle, people people of that nature, um, which are such marvelous technicians that I don't think we'll ever see some of the likes again. I I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I was a kid when those guys were probably in their prime. You know, in the in the seventies. You know, I was a young kid, but I I remember them. And I think another one that's under appreciated that you probably did some matches is, is probably Bob Backlund. Yes. I worked more with Bob on the independent circuit after he had left with Northeast champ, Northeast wrestling. Uh, my, my, um, Michael Lombardi uh, with Northeast wrestling here is very big on the East coast and has been for a long time. And I, I was a senior referee for 16 years. Okay. In fact, when I started out with Michael, uh, I was his only referee. I'd do seven or eight matches back in those days. Yeah. Um, and I worked with Bob several times on the independent circuit. Bob was a champion when I came in. And uh, I, I did not work with him in WWF, but I did work with him in the independent. And, and one of the things I respect phenomenally about Bob is um, we had a match, and he was wrestling kind of a nobody, a no, no name, um, maybe a local kid. Before the match, Bob goes, you know, let's let the kid work. Let him get some high spots. Let him do his thing. Let, let's let make him look good in front of the crowd. I don't want to do a squash match. I'm not going to do a five-minute match. I want to give the people something. And um, you have to respect somebody like that because not everybody would do that. Yeah. Um, and he, he was a real, real gentleman. I mean, I have so much respect for him. Um I have so much respect for him because of the fact that um, that's the way he approached the business as a, as a, as a, and see him and Bruno Sammartino and people of that nature, Harley race. Um, they had such respect, not that they don't today, but they had such respect for the business. And I mean, Bruno 
I don't know if you knew this or not. Bruno would not have an alcoholic beverage. He liked to have a wine with dinner, but if he was in a restaurant and there were kids in a restaurant, he wouldn't have a drink. Oh, I didn't know. He, he, he felt that it was not, um, it was not, uh, proper for a champion to drink in front of young people. It wasn't a good thing. And I'll tell you, if I could do another story about Bruno. Sure, go ahead. Um, he was, he was commenting on a match that I did one night. He was a commentator and we went out for dinner after and I happened to be sitting next to him. And I was relatively young wrestle referee at the time. And Bruno said something to me that I carried throughout my career. He said, Dave, I want to tell you something. If there's five people in the arena or 50 or 5,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, he goes, you work your tail off because those people might have saved their money for weeks to see that match. And you owe them um, all you can give. So never look at the crowd. Just always work the same and give people what they deserve. And see, to me, that man never forgot his humble beginnings. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, it's amazing that you mentioned some of those names. Uh, quick story for you. Harley Race, before he passed away, this is probably probably 10 years ago now, I was at a one of his WLW events in Springfield. And uh, it was probably the first one I'd been to of his. And he, uh, I had a, a action figure of him in the in the box still. And I was walking by his truck, and I pointed to him, and I told my wife, I said, "Hey, that's Harley Race. I want to make sure and see him inside before we, the match, so he, he can sign it for me." And he looked up and saw me, and he waved to me to come over, and he goes. You want me to sign that for you? I said, yeah, I'll wait till you're inside. I, I don't want to bother you while you're outside here taking a break or whatever. He goes, no, 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 give it to me. And I gave it to him. I handed him a marker. He signed it eight times, world champion, Harley Race. Handed it back to me. He goes, thanks for coming out, and uh, I'll see you inside. And I just <clears throat> was in awe. You wouldn't find that today, I don't think, with wrestlers of today's era. You see some, and they're going to, oh, yeah, come here. I'll sign your stuff real quick. I mean, I don't think. I mean, but I just thought it was a great gesture from such a legend. Well, the, the true legends are – that's why they're legends, because <clears throat> they have a feeling and an empathy. I mean, people forget that the fans are the most important element in wrestling. Without fans, there is no wrestling. I mean, my book is dedicated to all wrestling fans of all ages and generations. <clears throat> because without the fans, um, we're nothing. We're, 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 you know, what, what do we have? We have no yeah. one to perform in front of. And and you, and I, I was a fan, and I still am. Um, and, and I don't think there's anything to be ashamed in that. Um, for those who really love the, who really love the business, I, I will tell you one thing though. There, there, there was a story, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but a former champion, a well-known champion, was um, in. Um, in, I was either train station or, or, or the airport and a kid went over and asked for his autograph and the person was reading the paper and, um, he wanted to charge him a hundred bucks because he said, you're going to sell it on the internet. And a kid goes, no, no, I, I, I'm a, I'm a fan. He goes, no, you're going to sell it on the internet. hundred bucks. Father came over and said, really? And he goes, really? So that's how it's changed. Yeah. <laughs> and that's unfortunate because probably. Most of the time, that's does what happened. Unfortunately, they'll get the autograph and then they'll they'll 
they'll sell it. Now, a lot of them, if you put your name on it, you know, they'll say to whoever your name is and then sign it. A little more challenging to get rid of it. But, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's true. So I kind of, you know, I get it. But I also am like, okay, they're paying to see you sign the sign the darn whatever it is, a picture or action figure. So, But in fairness to the guys today, it's yeah. a completely different oh, era. Yeah. A completely different story. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, you know, this is where all sports people kind of like are at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to knock them for doing this. I right. mean, you know, because they, they also have to strike while the iron is hot because next month they may be gone. So they, they, they kind of have to strike, you know, while the iron is hot. I could tell you a funny story, though, about signing autographs. Um, one night I was working, I think, the Ridgewood Grove Arena around Queens or Brooklyn, wherever. I, can't, I think it's Queens. It was in Queens. It's closed many years. And it was raining a little bit. And I'm out front, and I'm signing about 30 autographs, okay? And on the 31st, I said to this kid, it was all kids. I said to this kid, I said, why would you want my autograph? And I was feeling pretty good. And he, I said, why would you want my autograph? He goes, you're the only free one, and you're better than nobody. Leave <laughs> it to a kid. Leave it to a kid to bring it back to reality. You know what? You know what I'm saying? You know. So that that was pretty. Um, oh, that's a good one. I like yeah. it. That's funny. Yeah. Um. Yeah. In fact, uh, I'm going to WrestleCon at the end of this month down in Dallas. It's about a few hours from where I'm from, and. uh you know, you got to pay, you pay to get in the event and then you pay for each, whatever autograph. You can go up and talk to them for a few minutes or whatever, mm-hmm. but if you want an autograph, you want a, a photo with them, you know, they, 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 they charge you extra, which I understand. They got to, they got to make uh, money on it for being there, but, uh, it's going to be a huge event and I'm glad it's close enough because, uh, I've never been to one. I'm pretty excited about it. It's kind of like, a, I guess, like Comic-Con or whatever those other ones are. So, you know, it's, a lot of legends are there, too. So it sounds like it's going to be really a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think it will be. Uh, my wife's going with me. She's not much of a fan, but she's going to do it because, you know, it's me. And I do stuff for her that <laughs> go to stuff with her that I don't really particularly care for. But that's 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 what marriage is about. Right. Give and take. Well, I'll tell you a funny story about my wife. Um, I was during intermission. I'm out in the, um, my wife used to come to some of the shows, especially when I get older, because I was getting, I was on, I was probably close to 60 or in my 60s when I retired. And I met a fan out at the hot dog counter and he said, Oh, ref, I met your wife. She was sitting behind. He said, Oh, really? I said, Yeah. I look back and there's a woman reading a book. And she's got a little, um, she's got napkins on, it was bleachers. She, she used to sit way up in the bleachers. She had napkins on the bleachers, having a little snack and reading a book. And the guy turns around and he says, um, lady, can I ask you a question? You don't look like you belong here. Why would you buy a ticket and come here? She goes, oh, I'm married to the older referee. If he gets hurt, someone will have to take him to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> the older referee. I said, you, could, you know, you just couldn't say to referee, you know. But um, so I know what you mean when you say the wives, uh, you know, they, they, they're good. They, they're good. They, they, they give and take just like, just like we do. So I, I appreciate her. She's a good woman. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of those <laughs> things that, 
people, the same thing, kind of look at me when I go to these events, more than, you know, the indie ones. They're like, one person come up to me and says, you don't look like you you should be here. I'm like, what do you mean? Because I'm, you know, I was, I guess, had more dressier or something. I wore a collared shirt. I don't remember, but he just kind of said, well, you just look like a business guy and you should be doing something else. I was just like, mm. no, I, I really enjoy this uh, or I wouldn't be here. So understand that. Well, I could certainly see that you, that you do enjoy it. Um, I do. Well, yeah, you look at, uh, for those of you watching, you can see the background. Yeah. I, uh, I do. I've loved it since I was a kid. Uh, my parents thought I was crazy. Uh, people that know me that don't know me other than when I was, I was in the army for a long, 26 years, if they didn't know me outside of work and they saw me at something or they, I had something like that, they'd be like, that doesn't seem like you. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm different when I'm off work than uh, at work. Well, I think people had the same reaction to me. If, if I happen to mention it, I, you know, I, I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I was um, doing shows. Uh, I, I actually traveled a little bit. I traveled quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily with the WWF. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to hit it with three um, really good independents. Mm-hmm. And they used me. Almost exclusively, they liked the way I worked with the wrestlers. They liked the fact that I worked hard in the ring and, and this kind of stuff. And so I was very fortunate to have a lot of work. Um, I, I would be uh, for for someone who did this part time. I never did this full time. I always had a legit job. Yeah. Um, actually, my my last job for 23 years was running the largest tax collection agency in the, um, for town in New York. I was elected receiver of taxes. And I actually collected Freddie Blassie's taxes, um, Donald Scolan, and Paul Heyman's parents' taxes. I'm sure they loved you for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But if I could tell a Freddie Blassie story. I'd Let's hear it. Fred, Freddie, was, Freddie was one of my favorite people. He lived um, 20 minutes from me. And first time I worked with Freddie, the WWF used to appear at high schools and colleges back in the 80s. And we did a high school show in one of the worst sections of Brooklyn. It was like my third or fourth match out at Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I show up at the show, um, and Arnold Scolan was in charge. It was a small show at, at, at a Catholic high school. And um, I'd always wanted to meet Freddie. So I see Freddie sitting there, so we started talking. And all, for some reason, we both hit it off really good. Now, Freddie thought he was the toughest wrestler of all time, so I used to bait him. Every time I'd see him, I'd say, Hey, Freddie, I heard Gorgeous George, even though he had the appearance of, of kind of a, a little bit of a fairy, I said, I heard he was a tough wrestler. Ah, shit, he didn't know the difference between a toenail and a toehold. I said, okay, so we get in the ring. We're in the ring now, and, and, and he's managing. He's the Ayatollah Blassie managing the sheet. So he calls me over, and he says, hey, look at the crowd. He goes, holy shit, they're tougher looking than the wrestlers. He goes, this is going to be a little rough. Now, we used to get paid according to the number of people that showed up at a show. So the garden would be top paid. The Coliseum and Nassau Coliseum would be top paid. These small shows would be small pay, maybe $50, $100. Um, but it depended on the number of people in the crowd. So Freddie looks up in the balcony, and he sees a man weighing about 350 pounds sitting on two chairs. So Freddie goes, when you get back to the locker room, Dave, you tell Skolin to go up there and make sure that guy bought two tickets. 
because <laughs> one ticket, one more ticket could put us into the next category. So I said, I, I don't think I is going to want to go up and ask this guy. But I said, well, I just hope the balcony doesn't fall. Yeah. With this guy sitting up there. And, and Freddie goes, well, what the hell are we here? We're getting paid. We'll go home early. <laughs> so that that was Freddie, but 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 the best story of Freddie, if you don't mind me telling, um, he came in at a tax office. He used to he used to say, Dave, how can I get my taxes lowered? I'd say, move out of Westchester. But he'd come in at the office one day, and, and he's pounding on the outer office on the counter with his cane, his gold cane. He's pounding, saying, "Where's the supervisor? Who's the mayor? Where's the where's the supervisor's office? Where's the supervisor's office?" I'm going to go in and body slam him on his desk. So one of my uh, one of my people who worked for me comes running into my office. He said, there's a crazy man in our office. I said, that's not a crazy man. It's Freddie. You know him? I said, I work with him. Huh? So I went out and said, Freddie, come into your office. We'll talk. I said, Freddie, why are you going to go body slam the mirror? I said, I can't let you do that. I said, if you do that, I'll have to call the cops. He goes, shit, you'll be calling the ambulance. Uh, so I said, Freddie, what's the problem? He said, I got wild cats running around my lawn. And he said two weeks ago he'd take care of it, and he didn't. Well, so where's his office? We'll take care of him. I'll get him in an arm line. I said, Freddie, I'll call the animal warden. I did. And I said, you'll be taken care of. And he, and he did. And I spared the um, life of the, um, the mayor. Life of the mayor. But Freddie, his proudest moment was being banned from the garden because in his match with Bruno, people were ripping out seats and throwing them in a ring. And um, he, he, Freddie was, was a really a character. He was one of the big characters that yeah. I met. You know, on an, he was never off. He was never off screen. Even him and I talking alone, it was Freddie. Um, he, he actually started out um, in, in the days when they were in carnivals. Back in, uh, back in the 30s, he started his Sailor Freddy Blassie. And um, after he'd come out of the war, I guess, uh, in the 40s. So he was a, he was a character. Yeah. Yeah, he was a character. I mean, I, I don't remember him as a wrestler. I remember him as a manager in the, you know, WWF, the Ayatollah. Yeah, and, the Ayatollah. Uh, yeah, he was, he was a character. Let's talk about you've been honored by some organizations, uh, most notably I, uh, did the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in, uh, in 2011. Talk right, Joe Bruin. Right, Joe Bruin inducted me. I was, uh, it was a great honor, um, unexpected, but a great honor. Yeah. Talk about your, when you got that call, your emotions, when you got up there. What was that, what was that like for you? Well, about a year before I'd have been inducted into the Northeast Wrestling Hall of Fame um, in its initial class, along with Bam Bam Bigelow and uh, uh, Kurt Adonis. Um, and that was totally unexpected. Um, and then uh, when Joe called me a year later for the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, uh, it, it, it again was unexpected. But because as a referee, um, you know, like I said, nobody really basically ever paid to see a referee. Um, my job was to make the guys look good. But I, I think probably because I stuck around for so long and I worked for so many various promotions, I, I did get to work with the NWA when they came to New York. And I, I did a tour with them uh, overseas in Germany. Um, 
and I, I very much enjoyed working with them. Uh, I had a chance to work with people like, um, uh, well, um, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name. He was hurt in a plane crash and he, he never wrestled again. I can't think. Oh, um, was it Bobby, um, Bobby, no, Bobby Shane? No, no, no. Uh, it, it may come to me, but anyway, I had a chance to work with the NWA people and, um, uh, I, I guess probably because I stayed around so long uh, that, you know, that that was one of the reasons maybe. And also because of my work ethic, I think, in a ring. Uh, and, and, and again, I never expected to be in, inducted into a couple of wrestling halls of fame. Um, and I was honored with a 25 year plaque from Northeast Wrestling. And uh, I, I, I was really I was shocked and surprised and very, very honored and very humbled. I mean, I got inducted into the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame with people like Jay Strongbow, Rick Martell. Um, let's see who else. Uh, there was a number of, 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 of really great, yeah. great guys. And what an honor to, to be associated. Howard Finkel was the master of ceremonies. And it, it was just a, a terrific experience. Yeah. Again, very humbling. Yeah. Um, because, again, I, you know, as a ref, you never wanted to take away from the boys. You wanted to work with them. And I think they appreciated that because, um, and, and not a knock on state officials, but not all state officials, I don't think, understood um, the wrestling game. Right. Um, when I started in 82, I was told by the older officials, if they ever touch you, you disqualify them on the spot. Well, I'm saying to myself, yeah, and I'll never work again. You know, so they took it to be like it was boxing. And they, they approached it as if it was boxing and, and you couldn't do that. I mean, you know, I was too much of a yeah. fan yeah. to see w- what I was supposed to do. So again, it was very humbling. Yeah. I mean, being inducted into those hall of fames, I mean, as a referee, especially is, is quite special and is, uh, says a lot about you as a person, as a worker, you know, in the business, you know, you don't see a lot of referees, being inducted into Hall of Fames. So hats off to you, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, could I, could I, could I give you a funny story though about, I talked about Chief J. Strongbow being, being inducted with him and uh, Samu, Samu. And by the way, uh, it should be noted. And I do have it on my Facebook. Somebody sent it to me much to my displeasure. Um, Do you remember when Rikishi and, um, his cousin, the partner, they were the Samoan savages. It was Rikishi and someone else, uh, another Samoan, uh, Umaga, before he was Umaga. They used to do a dance in a ring, which is almost like a break dance. Yeah. They insisted that I do it with them. And it was voted the worst referee to do a, to do a uh, Umaga uh, dance in the ring with these two guys of anyone. Um, so, um, now I've totally forgotten your question. <laughs> no, I was just <laughs> saying that, um, you know, being in the business for that long oh. and being recognized, you know, it says a lot about you and uh, your work ethic because you don't hear of a lot of referees being recognized by a Wrestling Hall of Fame. So I just said it was your character. And, uh, no, I just said I really appreciate it. So. You know, I I just wanted to let you know that. And then well, thank my, you. Thank you. my last question, 
is what are you doing now? Well, I've been retired for 10 years. I live up in the Catskill Mountain area, um, which is about mm, two and a half hours from New York City. Um, beautiful retirement type of area to retire to. Um, I've been doing several things. I most recent, well, I, I wrote the book. It gave me an opportunity to write the book, um, which is about almost just short of 300 pages with about 40 photographs in it. And um, again, it's not a book that throws anybody under the bus. Right. Um, it, it's a fan based book that shows my appreciation for the time I spent in the, uh, and again, it's dedicated to fans. Yeah. And it, it talks about my, my career and it talk, it, a lot of very, very funny and interesting behind the scenes stories yeah. um, about those days back in the eighties and nineties when things were people, kayfabe was in play. People thought it was uh, real. The people weren't allowed in the locker room. It was just for the referee and the wrestlers. And it was a different time and era. And I'd like to share, I wanted to share that with, and it got a great, it got a good review, by the way, from Slam Wrestling out of uh, Canada. Yeah. I just did a podcast with uh, Greg Oliver. Oh, you Uh, did? Yeah, I did one uh, uh, Monday night. Uh, Oh. Yeah. uh, Great guy. Uh, Had a good conversation with him. Yeah, so they gave me a really, really positive review. I mean, I was nervous about writing the book because mm-hmm. I'm not a name. People aren't going to recognize Dave Dwinnell. And I've, on some of the other podcasts, some of the people said, well, we had no idea who the heck you were. But when we started investigating some of the mm-hmm. stories you had and this and that, yeah. so it would be great to have you, have yeah. you on. So uh, I was fortunate there. So yeah. I wrote the book, and, and it's going well. And I've been to a few fan conventions, and it's all well because I priced the book at fourteen ninety nine, and the Kindle or, or the eBooks, and they're available on Amazon and all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the, that's five ninety. I, I wanted to. I, I didn't expect to make a lot of money off it. I wanted mm-hmm. to share my experiences, and it gave me something to do in retirement. The other thing I'm doing is I'm working with the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, okay. which is set up in Albany, New York. Um, they're going to be at the. T- they're going to be located at the Times Union Center, which is the big civic center in Albany. They have the WWF on a regular, semi-regular mm-hmm. basis, and they're going to be located right there where all these sporting events are taking place. They, mm-hmm. They're going to. We're going to be setting this up. I'm helping the founder Seth um, Turner and also Michael Lenuto, who's working very closely with him. We're going to be doing what we can to set it up so there'll be a place to honor the International Wrestling Hall of Fame. Okay. We had our first, they had the first uh, dinner last year, and they mm-hmm. honored uh, past wrestlers who had passed away. Their inductees were past wrestlers who had passed away, um, and also American, foreign, uh, so forth. And um, I'm kind of excited about working with them on that. And I also have a love for music, although I don't play an instrument. I put together a New Orleans jazz band, which I love New Orleans music. We put together a jazz band up here, which before COVID was going pretty well. But, of course, with COVID, we had to back off quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm really keeping busy. And it was through Facebook. I was able to touch base with a lot of the wrestlers I'd lost contact with, guys I worked with, hadn't heard from in years. And what's kind of funny is – a guy, guy will tell me, hey, Dave, I loved working with you. And he used his real name. 
Well, I didn't know most of the wrestlers' real names. I only knew their – so this guy was saying, uh, I'm so-and-so, and I worked with you, and I had to look up who we wrestled as in order to be able to know who I was being yeah, yeah. with because I had no idea <laughs> their real names. So I'm keeping busy in retirement, yeah. and my six grandkids keep me very busy. I love them dearly, and yeah. they are uh, the lovers of my life, and along with my wife, Valerie, who – convinced me that you better retire because I had, I had injured my knee at the end of my career. I never had an injury for 32 years and rolling into the ring. I caught my boot on the, on, on the, um, on the outside of the ring and tore a meniscus muscle. And with the arthritis I had in there, I kept trying to wrestle. I, I kept trying, I kept trying to referee and my knee caved in. I couldn't get up without grabbing the ropes. And finally my wife threatened to divorce me if I didn't retire. Oh, so oh. I owe an awful lot to her because yeah, she was always yeah. there for me at the end. She helped me into the car when I could hardly walk. And I was stubborn. I wasn't giving up without a, uh, without a fight. So, you know, God bless That's her amazing. and so forth. That's amazing. Um, you know, you mentioned the Intera- International Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, I know I did a podcast uh, probably six or seven months ago now with uh, Mac Davis. He he was up there last year um, doing some stuff with that, and uh, I don't know if you know him or not. Yes, I, I do. I know okay. the name, so okay. I believe I did meet him up there. Yeah, um, great guy, too, and he was uh, going up there last year. I think he's going up again this year for it and, and getting involved with that, so that's a great uh, – I've kind of looked that up as well, and, and it looks like a great organization, and I hope you guys uh, – Continue what you're doing, you know, up there. And with your your book, Ringman, I'm going to – folks, I'll have that posted out in the description where you can purchase it uh, in the description. And I want to thank one more time, Dave Dwinnell. Thank you for, for coming on today, sir. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And I always enjoy talking about um, pro wrestling, especially from the classic era. Mm-hmm. And, and can I, if I could say one last thing. Um, nowhere in the book do we not today's wrestlers just because I happen to come from a different era, possibly Mm -hmm. a little bit of a Cro-Magnon man, you might say, but I respect and I, I, I have great admiration for the guys today because they put their, they put their, uh, lives on the line going into the ring. People think it's all uh, preordained, but there's always the element of danger when you step into the ring, yeah, and I, th- I actually think it was dangerous years ago. I mean, I had I had darts sticking out of my uh, boots one night. People were throwing darts because oh. wow. they were throwing beer canisters. They were throwing the darts, um, and um, flashlight batteries were flying by my size D. And oh, if you boy. talk about heat, talk yeah. About heat. So people don't realize there is an element of danger. There's always a chance you can get hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, my hat's off to the guys today. Yeah. It's a different time. They're bigger. They're quicker, like all sports. Yeah. Um, are, are they tougher? People say, oh, are the old ones tougher than the new ones. No, they're both. They're just different time, different eras. And you really can't compare the two. Yeah. But my hat's off to anyone who puts their tights on and gets it. All right. Well, from there, Mr. Dave Dwinnell, thank you so much, sir, for coming on. I appreciate it. And, folks, if you're listening, thank you. If you're watching, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. Hey, this is Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out.
Hey guys, before we get started, I just wanted to read this commercial because it's an agreement that we made with a really great podcast, and I want to tell you guys all about it. Pro Wrestling Interviews, it features guests who are hot indie stars as well as the greats of the ring. Each week, you can join the amazing Velvet as well as Dr. John as they host this jam-packed hour of interviews, pro wrestling news, and entertaining guests. It's an hour you don't want to miss. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Every Sunday... 9 p.m. Eastern, just go to ProWrestlingInterviews.com, and it'll take you to their Facebook page where you can get the custom podcast link for that week. Don't miss a second of Pro Wrestling Interviews. That's Sunday nights, 9 Eastern, ProWrestlingInterviews.com. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Kathy Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off the uh, building. And then uh, I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stiles of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts, and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts will include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, talking here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect is? Well, I'll is? tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found the true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think... Uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing. Bruno was an early champion. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. Here's Phil Actor, and once again, we're speaking here with 
Tino Sammartino. Tino, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants? Well, actually, it, it was uh, uh, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it the did loss. Did women have anything to do Well, yes, but the whole thing is this, if you rules, as I always understood them, was that you, the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out, WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro, talking old school match of the week, talking dream matches, taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out, VOCNation.com, WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation. 